welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described our mission by saying, You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt to retard the moral decay and light to overcome the darkened mind brought about by our race's sin. Both salt and light influence their surroundings. But how can Christians have influence when every time we articulate the biblical worldview, like that marriage is between one man and one woman, that homosexual sex is wrong, or that we should not embrace trans people's delusion, we are marginalized by the accusation that we are intolerant. This episode puts the concept of tolerance that is often promoted today under the spotlight of Scripture so that we can help those we influence to think carefully about accusations of intolerance leveled at Christians in this cultural moment. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 4 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Tim Keller tells the story of being invited as the pastor of a Manhattan church to a panel discussion at a local college with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam, an experience that revealed the current misunderstanding of the word tolerant. The panelists were asked to discuss the differences among religions. In a courteous, respectful tone, the panelists agreed on this statement. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as he really is. Keller comments, several of the students were quite disturbed by this. One student insisted that what matters was to believe in God and to be a loving person yourself, to insist that one faith had a better grasp of the truth than others was intolerant. Christians who lobby for a biblical worldview need to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Recognizing that the rising generation hears any strong truth claim as intolerance of other viewpoints. As Carl Truman points out, criticism of homosexuality is now homophobia, that of transgenderism, transphobia. The use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture into the realm of the irrational and points toward an underlying bigotry on the part of those who hold such views. Disagreement now means intolerance and bigotry. Furthermore, in this cultural moment, tolerance is seen as the highest of virtues and obvious outgrowth of love. But is tolerance always virtuous and loving? No. We need to help our loved ones and secular friends see that this is a vast oversimplification of tolerance. Society should not be tolerant of murderers, rapists, terrorists, 
thieves, or landlords oppressing widows and orphans. Tolerating such crimes would certainly be evil. Before pointing to the misuse of this term in the culture, let's put ourselves as Christians under the lens of the correct meaning of intolerance. A careful examination of the word intolerance reveals that it is the failure to have a fair, respectful attitude towards those with whom you disagree. Webster says it is, quote, being willing to grant equal freedom of expression, especially in religious matters or other social political rights. It means bigoted, unquote. Intolerance is having a hostile attitude toward your opponents and because of that hostility being tempted to treat them unfairly. By this definition, Bible-believing Christians have significant intolerance to confess. So let's look at how Christians project sinful intolerance toward non-believers. First, we can feel compelled to verbalize to anyone we meet in the LGBTQ life, I disagree with your lifestyle. Can you imagine Jesus feeling compelled to point out everyone's sin every time he got to know someone? He was the Holy One. He must have seen sin everywhere he went, in every interaction he had with humans. Where did he find the willpower to bite his lip? He reserved his direct confrontation of sin almost exclusively for the hypocrites, the corrupt scribes and Pharisees. In contrast to the urgency to point out everyone's sin whom he met, Jesus seemed to be compelled to express unconditional love to those he met. For example, the same radical acceptance he had demonstrated in asking for a drink from the cup of the woman at the well of Samaria, he exhibited in his relationship with Zacchaeus. First, he expressed radically valuing Zacchaeus as a person. He said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. The bystanders understood Jesus' message to Zacchaeus exactly that way. For Luke tells us, and when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And then it was after tasting such unconditional love that Zacchaeus repented. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus' unconditional love led Zacchaeus to see his sin, not confrontation. Often, when we have opportunities to speak into the public arena, courageous Christians who obey the promptings of God's Spirit to speak up, which takes a lot of courage, seem compelled to prove others' arguments wrong rather than confidently using questions to ask and probe, seeking to understand what their friend thinks. Proverbs 18.2 points out, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. We need to relax and increase our winsomeness by asking for others' thoughts on various topics. A second way we can project intolerance toward non-believers is by socially distancing from those who swear, tell dirty jokes, or are in the LGBTQ life. As a biker friend of mine used to say, Christians treat sinners like lepers, like they're afraid they might get some of their sin on them. This attitude in the hearts of some Christians is difficult to hide. 
Dave Kinneman of Barna Research conducted an exhaustive study of what 16 to 29-year-old non-Christians think about Christians. He published his findings in the book Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christians and Why It Matters. This is what he found. He said, the gay issue has become the big one, the negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation. Outsiders say our hostility toward gays, not just opposition to homosexual politics and behaviors, but disdain for gay individuals, has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. When you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, neighbor, or business associate who is an outsider, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay hater, homophobic. Now, admittedly, the media routinely identifies Bible-believing Christians with members of the tiny Westboro Baptist Church hate group that holds signs that say God hates fags. As unfair as this criticism is, it is worth making us search our hearts over. The third way we project intolerance is unintentional, yet it widens the gap between Christians and non-Christians in the thinking of many. It is this, mistakenly focusing too much on how Christ changes lives, believe it or not. Many non-Christians think that Christians are just better people than they are. The irony is that we feel like we can't share our failures with them because we always have to show how Christ has changed our lives. But as John Leonard says in his book, Get Real, the opposite is the case. When we are not honest about our struggles and our faith, we distort the gospel and may be putting false barriers in the way of those we are so anxious to bring to Christ. We want others to see Jesus in us when it would be so much better if they instead saw someone in need of Jesus. In our desire to show others how different we are because of Christ, we are not making ourselves any more appealing to the non-believers around us. We must work at being normal so that others can imagine themselves being able and, by God's grace, deeply desiring to be followers of Jesus. The fourth way we project intolerance is by devaluing the lost secular world. This is a failure to grasp what theologians call common grace. While humanity is totally depraved and deserving of God's wrath— God graciously blesses all men with a measure of his unmerited favor. This is called God's common grace. The image of God in man, his moral nature, is marred by the fall, but not fully destroyed. Common grace includes all undeserved blessings that natural man receives from the hand of God. Rain, sun, prosperity, health, happiness, natural capacities, and gifts, sin being restrained from complete dominion. The doctrine of common grace explains how a man can be totally depraved and yet still commit acts that are, in some sense, good. A useful way to get at this concept is to consider the problem of good. Christians know the answer to the problem of evil. If God is so good, why is the world so bad? Because of human sin. But another logical problem emerges, the problem of good. Namely, if we're all so bad, why is the world so good? Why do non-Christian firefighters go back up the stairs to save a non-Christian financial worker on 911? How is it that non-Christians can be responsible for so much goodness 
truth, sacrificial love, and beauty? The answer is not to deny man's sinful nature, but it is God's common grace toward the creation he loves. Understanding this truth is life-changing. Theologian Scott Kaufman writes, An appreciation for common grace can help set us free from so many of the fears, prejudices, and unchristian behavior we so often wallow in as Christians as we pursue relationships, evangelism, work, cultural engagement, and arts and entertainment. God is the author of truth, beauty, and goodness wherever and whenever they are found, and they can be found nearly everywhere in virtually every person, place, situation, or idea that ever existed. Bible-believing Christians in the 20th century have a history of being hostile toward culture and non-Christians, mistakenly thinking that is what it means to love not the world. But God loves and values every part of his creation. So should we. The fifth way we project intolerance is subtly thinking that homosexuality and other sexual sins are worse than our sins, like pride. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. As we teach the rising generation to be discerning, we risk that discernment leading to a critical spirit if it is not combined with deep humility about our own shortcomings. Jesus warned, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Judgmentalism is the result of discernment plus pride. We are to be discerning of others' spiritual condition. This is clear in the next verses. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The remedy for judgmentalism is not the tolerance being promoted by some in the culture at the expense of whether their ideas are true. Today, many in the culture use the word tolerance to mean accepting every person's ideas about truth and saying that they are equally valid. But we are called to be discerning in this text of Scripture. So let's look at how the meaning of the word tolerance has been changed. As men who understand our times, like David's men of valor understood their times, we must help the rising generation see that the meaning of the word tolerance has been changed today. Disagreement is mistakenly labeled intolerance or phobia. We need to not only help our loved ones understand this reality, but have the courage to challenge those who call our opposition to destructive anti-biblical worldviews intolerant. We need to say, excuse me, but I think you meant to say disagreement, not intolerance. I mean, this is America, a democracy where everyone has the right to disagree. Christians are being accused of intolerance for not accepting all truth claims as equally valid. We need to help others see the difference between a subjective truth claim, which is really an opinion, and an objective truth, which corresponds to reality as it is. 
A four-year-old learning addition may insist that two plus two equals five. She has every right to believe that. But the truth is that two plus two equals four. Truth is intolerant of error. Truth rejects all claims that two plus two equals anything other than the number four. All opinions about what two plus two equals are not equally valid. The idea that every person has a right to offer his opinion is confused today with the concept that every person's opinion is equally valid. And we need to help the rising generation see that. Here are three truths that we need to help the rising generation and those around us see from the Colson Center, really the origin of these thoughts in my mind. What would you say? First, some people mistakenly treat subjective opinions as though they are objectively true. Second, understanding the difference between subjective and objective truth claims can be a matter of life or death. Third, caring people help others understand the difference between subjective opinion and objective truth claims. So let's go back and look at these three assertions. First, some people mistakenly treat subjective truth claims opinions as though they were objectively true. If I say Boston cream pie is the best dessert, that is a subjective truth claim. Everyone is entitled to their personal subjective opinion about a variety of claims from what they prefer for dessert to what they desire in a new car or what series they watch on Netflix. But some cultural influencers say that all truth claims are a matter of personal or cultural perspective. This makes no sense. Certainly, the subjective worldview of every human affects the way he or she perceives objective data that they evaluate. But truth is what corresponds to reality. There are some who say the Holocaust never happened. The Holocaust Museum proves this truth claim to be false. There are some who say that lynching of blacks in the South was rare. The new Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama proves this subjective truth claim is false. Subjective truth claims are opinions. They are not equally valid with objective truth. It is not intolerant to say subjective truth claims are wrong. They do not correspond to true reality. The second assertion is this. Understanding the difference between subjective and objective truth claims can be a matter of life or death. Christian apologist J. Warner Wallace uses the analogy of poisonous mushrooms, not something I know much about, but he makes a good point. He says, imagine, for example, you're foraging for edible mushrooms with a friend. Your goal is the tasty Asian patty straw mushroom, a variety of mushroom that is used extensively in Asian cuisine. You find one, but your friend abruptly stops you from picking it. That's not a patty straw, she says. That's a death cap mushroom. They look alike, but death caps are called that for a reason. They are extremely poisonous. You smartly decide to leave the mushroom alone. What made your friend's statement about the death cap mushroom true? Was it simply her subjective opinion? If you held a different opinion about the mushroom, would that have rendered it safe not to eat? Is the truth about the poisonous nature of the mushroom grounded in your subjective opinion or in the nature of the mushroom itself? 
Your friend's declaration is an excellent example of an objective truth claim. The death cap mushroom is poisonous for anyone who eats it, whether they would personally affirm that claim or not. Truth corresponds to reality. Death cap mushrooms have killed people. This truth is intolerant of the error of thinking that all mushrooms are edible. The third assertion is that caring people help others to understand the difference between subjective and objective truth claims. Love is intolerant of truth claims that harm. Going back to the mushroom illustration, suppose after her first warning, you answered, I think you're wrong. I never heard of a death cap mushroom. This looks just like the picture in the book of patty straw mushrooms. Should your friend have just said, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth? Of course not. Love required her to be intolerant of your deadly wrong view. Love does not mean tolerating destructive behavior. The common cultural idea that tolerance is the way to love others is false. Accepting another's mistaken ideas and behaviors instead of lovingly trying to get them to change is in fact the biblical definition of hatred. Consider God's advice to parents from Proverbs 13:24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Loving parents are intolerant of their child's wrong behavior. They know that allowing him to continue down that path is destructive. summarize this episode, Christians are being marginalized in today's culture and their ideas deemed intolerant. Although most of this is the result of changing the meaning of the term intolerant, this episode examines five ways Christians might be projecting intolerance toward the secular world and the lost. First, we might feel compelled to verbalize our disapproval of their sinful lifestyle. When Jesus, whose holiness made him aware of everyone's sinfulness, nevertheless began his relationships with unconditional love. Second, we might be inclined to socially distance ourselves from those whose sins are visibly apparent. When our leader was known as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Third, we might mistakenly hide our struggles because we want others to see Christ in us. When it would actually be better for them to see in us someone in need of Jesus. Fourth, we might project hostility toward unbelievers and secular culture when we fail to recognize the biblical truth that God loves his creation, empowers all humans to exhibit godly virtues through his common grace to some degree. Fifth, as we discern and teach our loved ones to be discerning, We will become judgmental unless our brokenness stays in the front of our minds. We then examine the idea that every person has a right to his own opinion, being confused today with the concept that every person's opinion is equally valid. We observe that subjective truth claims, which are called opinions, are different from objective truth claims that correspond to reality And that contrary to what we hear in the culture, love is intolerant toward ideas and behavior that is harmful. 
For further prayerful thought, number one, what thoughts from the podcast stimulated your thinking about how Christians project the intolerance? See your show notes for further questions. Feel free to email me, gyagle at forgingbonds.org with pushback, questions about resources, other resources, or additional ideas about how to help Christ's men be better equipped for their mission. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of time. The index link is also in the show notes of every podcast. Next week's message, as we continue our series, Helping Christian Men Build a Biblical Worldview Like David's Men of Valor, is entitled, Thinking Biblically About Poverty. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to let other Christian men know about it as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well.